<laughs> uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and I'll hand it over to Jean. He is recovering from a voice incident. So uh, we'll pray that he can make it through. And uh, again, it'll be our normal Thursday night format. We're going to have class and then you're expected to interact. All right. And I'll be watching. That's why I'm not in front. So. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time and we just pray a blessing over this house and our time together. We really pray that you would work in uh, Gene's voice and in his heart as he presents your words to us, that it will come across, that it will be communicated, that we'll be receptive, open, and that we'll be able to interact over these truths. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Alan and Carolyn, for letting us come into your home and thank all of you for coming. I have to apologize for Fassel. I don't know if you all had heard that his father uh, was promoted into eternity and uh, he was prepared to come over and join us here and then was going to go with us into Papua New Guinea next week. Um, so be in prayer for him. Uh, I do hope that you'll become familiar with his work. Uh, he's working in one of the most difficult and dangerous countries in the world. It's very dangerous to be a Christian there. He has thousands and thousands of followers. They're not following him, but obviously under his ministry and his teaching. And uh, it would be good for you to get to know him. <laughs> I've gone through about the worst three weeks that I've had in memory. I think the last thing that compared to it was when I got malaria last in Papua New Guinea and, and nearly died there. Uh, it's been horrible. I've had the most horrible cough, and uh, I think I'm on the mend. I don't think I'm going to make any of you sick, but uh, I will do my best. Unfortunately, the pernicious thing about it is that it most comes on when I'm trying to speak. <laughs> so it's a little bit aggravating. I want to talk to you this afternoon about something that I think is going to be very relevant to us in the days ahead. I think most of us realize that the world has gone mad. And I would encourage you to consider that we haven't seen the worst yet. Uh, everything that we have seen up to this point is a warm-up. I know a lot of people are thanking God and breathing a sigh of relief because they, <coughs> excuse me, they believe that having come through the last three years, uh, three years, we're, uh, we're kind of out of it. I would suggest to you to think of it like what we call a hurricane, what you call a cyclone. We've been hit by the first band and now we're in the eye of the storm. Generally speaking, when the back half hits you, that's when the most damage is done. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I am. There are a lot of reasons for that, and we could maybe get into that later. But I say all of that to introduce the topic that I'd like to share with you, which is probably not going to be popular. It's maybe not what you most were hoping to hear. You and I need to prepare for persecution. Persecution is coming. It's uh, something that people like Fassel and his church members, people that we've known in Africa and Burma and China and Vietnam and many other places, they live with it on a daily basis. To them, it is just part of life. It's the way the world is. Uh, there are many people that live every day of their lives not knowing what they're going to eat, 
not knowing if they'll be free or incarcerated by evening, uh, not knowing if the person that they speak to is going to turn out to be a traitor and turn them in, and yet they live joyfully and they live with a sense of great purpose because they realize that God has prepared them for this time and this place and God has a ministry for them. And I would like to encourage each and every one of us here to realize that we're here in this time for a purpose. We're not here by accident. God had a plan for our lives. He brought us into the world for this hour. <coughs> and I would suggest that there are going to be some real Christian heroes made in the days ahead. And I would hope that some of us, if not all of us, could stand among those people. So, very briefly, what I'm going to do is start in Romans chapter 5, which encapsulates really uh, everything that I want to say, but we're not going to stop there. We're going to go from Romans 5 to the book of 1 Peter. And I'll try not to <coughs> uh, bore you or drag on too long. Uh, kind of make it brief and to the point. <coughs> and uh, then if we have questions, we can deal with them. <coughs> you could actually take the entire book of 1 Peter and squeeze it into Romans 5, 1 through 5. When we get to the book of 1 Peter, you'll see that it's written along certain lines. There are certain developments uh, that we see through the book, and I'll try to bring out some of those in the little bit of time that we have. Obviously, we can't go into great detail. I will be doing a conference <clears throat> on First Peter on the theme, Prepare for Persecution. When we get back, about 10 days after we get back home, we'll have a conference in Hot Springs, Arkansas on that theme. Let me just read these five verses, amazing verses, beginning in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. How many of us can raise our hand and say that we join with Paul in that? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, <coughs> and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. <coughs> Bear with me. The first thing I want to point out is that the three qualities, the three characteristics, maybe you could call them the three disciplines, that are going to carry you and I through are found in this passage. You'll notice if you look, we have hope in verse 2. We have faith in verse 1, hope in verse 2, hope again down in verse 4, hope in verse 5, and then, of course, toward the end of verse 5, we have love. Faith, hope, and love. Faith focuses on the Word of God, believes the Word of God, and then moves into the realm of hope. On the basis of that, hope believes the promises of God. Looking forward to the future, what has God promised for us? 
and the effect of being anchored to faith, looking back to the finished work of Christ on the cross, and hope looking forward to our future in glory, that anchor should free us and give us the ability to live lives that express the love of Christ to those around us. Uh, it makes me think of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14 where it talks about the love of Christ compels us because we judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And if he died for all, he died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them. Somewhere along the line, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and what he has gained for us in our eternal future should have such an impact on our souls that it sets us free from a self-centered lifestyle. It sets us free from living for me. It sets us free from an infantile attitude of what I want, and it gives us the capacity to realize that people all around us are also suffering and afflicted, going through hardships and difficulty and heartache, and there is a difference that we can make in every life that we touch. Sometimes it's nothing more than a smile, sometimes a kind word, sometimes a word of encouragement, sometimes we help lift the load, whatever it may be that they're under, but every one of us, every day of our life is rubbing shoulders with people who are desperately hurting, and they are desperately in need of what you and I have to offer, and we will be more able and more capable to offer what they need and what God would have us to do as we keep our focus on those anchor points, the finished work of the cross, the absolute certainty of our future, and therefore faith, hope, and love carries us through life. I would point out that Paul begins here by telling us what we already have. You know, it's very important for us to orient to who we are in Christ. And he says that because we have been justified by faith, and that's true of you if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, without Christ there is no justification. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no certainty of eternal life. But for those who have trusted in the finished work of Christ, we have been justified, that is, declared righteous before God by faith. Because of that, we have peace with God. Now, this is not talking about a feeling of peace. It's talking about a condition of peace, a standing of peace before God. In other words, the warfare that he mentions later when he talks about even when we were enemies, Christ died for us, that enmity ship, that enemy ship is gone. That hostility on our part toward him resulting in the wrath of God directed toward us is gone forever. And so we have a standing of peace with God. And that has practical effects, as he says, through him, Jesus Christ, we have access by faith. Now, faith is the key, and you have to use the key. If you choose not to use the key, then you don't have access to the advantages that faith will get you. But he talks about faith gives us access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That foundation, that understanding of who we are in Christ and what we have because of what he's done, that assurance of our eternal future changes everything in life for us, really. And we're able to live 
joyfully in the midst of hardship. And so he goes on saying that we not only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also glory. The word glory means to boast or to rejoice. We also glory in tribulations. Now, this is what I call and ought to be characteristic of Christians. When Paul says we rejoice in our tribulations, that's not always true of us, is it? When things go wrong, we groan, we complain, uh, we, we, you know, rail against the world or whatever the conditions may be, we're not happy. Uh, we all fall into that condition. But what he's speaking of is the ideal ought to. The ideal is that we all who are believers ought to glory in our tribulations. And since they're coming, it would be wise for us to prepare ourselves. Why would we glory in our tribulations? Because we know that tribulation produces perseverance. You know, every test, every trial, every temptation, every affliction, every adversity that you go through has a use-by date. In other words, it's going to last so long. It was ordained by God before the world began. It was designed specifically for you all of our sufferings are tailor-made for our life and our needs. And as we go into those difficulties and hardships, and believe me, I know people who have been going through things that I don't know if I would be able to bear a week, and yet they have endured it year after year after year with cheerfulness and joyfulness, ministering out of their suffering. And when you go to try to encourage those people, you end up walking away uplifted and wondering if you brought anything to the table. It's absolutely amazing. So what he's talking about here is a reality in the lives of some people. Nan and I know a lady, for example, we often use her uh, as an illustration. She battled cancer for 10 years and uh, finally thought they had the cancer beat. They were going down the road. A guy had parked a car in the middle of the road. Her husband hit the car, came up over a, a hill, hit the car, broke her neck. Now she's paralyzed from the next neck down. Nan and I got word of it, found out that she was in a uh, special unit in Denver, Colorado. We flew up there to go and pay her a visit. We're going to see her, what, probably a week or two after the accident, we know that she's paralyzed from the neck down. I'm saying to Nan as we're waiting in the waiting room, what can we say to encourage her? How can we encourage her? They wheel her into the room. Her face lights up like a sunrise. Hi, guys, it's so good to see you. And for a half an hour, she ministered to us and encouraged us, and we walked away and said, I wonder if we made her burden even a little bit lighter. And they've done that now for years and years and years. She and her husband as they've struggled. So it's true that we can. It's true that we ought. Paul's speaking here of the ideal. We glory in our tribulations because they produce perseverance. That is spiritual stamina and endurance. Uh, he goes on to say that not only perseverance, but character, character produces greater hope. We all have hope for our eternal future. The question is, do we have hope that lives with us on a daily basis? Do we live hopeful lives, we might say? Are our lives hopeful in the time of darkness, difficulty, and affliction? 
are we able to realize that this could not have touched us, but that God permitted it, not only permitted it, but designed it for our life, for our eternal good, and for our growth. To be able to live in that kind of a joyful spirit and hopeful spirit in the midst of adversity and affliction is a mark of true spiritual maturity. And therefore, he says, character produces hope, and hope never disappoints. I'm going to change it just a little bit to get the idea. Hope never disappoints. I would love never to be disappointed. How many of you like being disappointed? You know when people let you down? Husbands let wives down. Wives let husbands down. Parents let children down. Teachers let their students down. Politicians let their people down. I could go on and on, couldn't I? We don't enjoy that. But the great thing about the kind of hope, not hope looking forward, is a great thing to say, I know that I'm eternity bound. I know that all things work together for good. I know that I'm going to be in the presence of the king. That's great. What about right now? Do I not only have a future hope, do I have a living present hope? A hope that is like a life preserver that just keeps me on top of the flood. That's the kind of thing that we want to have. And so he concludes this little section. Believe me, there's more in this section. I'm only scratching the surface. Hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Could I suggest to you that if you're not sensing the love of God alive and at work in your life, it may be because you're not doing your homework. Notice that this comes at the end of the section. In other words, we have gone through in five verses a growing process that is the ideal that God has for each and every one of us that starts at justification and goes through the growing experience of learning what Christ has accomplished for me, what I have to look forward to in the future, what God intends to do in my life, all things working together for the ultimate good of his plan, bringing me to a point where I have the spiritual stamina within my own soul to live a joyful and a hopeful existence as I minister to people around us. Because you see, that love of Christ that's been poured out in our hearts is not there just for us. The love of Christ that's poured out in our hearts is for others. We will sense it, we'll be aware of it, we will enjoy it the more we give it away. As we spread the love of Christ through sharing the gospel with the unsaved, through encouraging, exhorting, and instructing fellow believers through lifting up the, the downcast and, and healing up and binding up the brokenhearted and doing all that we can to minimize the burden that someone around us is carrying. You say, well, where do I have to go to do this? Start at home. What a ministry for a husband to have to a wife. What a ministry for a wife to have to her husband. And just imagine, if only one in the marriage is doing that, the marriage is going to be transformed. But what if both are doing it? What a miracle that's going to be as the impact of it and the ripples of it go out in the world around that couple. Then parents to children 
And then of course, friends and family, neighbors, community, it just continues to spread and spread and spread. Could I say to you that you have entered into eternal union with Jesus Christ, not just to save your soul from hell. You and I have entered into eternal union with Jesus Christ to fulfill a purpose that he had for us before the world began. And you know how he intends to get us to the fulfillment of that? Testing, trial, adversity, and affliction. Obviously, there are blessings along the way. Obviously, there is uh, wonderful experiences and, and enjoyable times along the way. But if you're not suffering today, could I just suggest to you it's coming? You surely don't think you've gone through your last affliction, your last hardship, your last bad surprise? No. There will be more coming down the track. And to be able to enter into those and say, looks like God's putting me back in training. I love a quote by the old Greek philosopher Epictetus. He was kind of a, a hard-nosed old Stoic, and uh, he made a quote, and it's written somewhere here in my Bible, but I tried to find it and couldn't find it. My Bible is full of written notes all over the place. He made a, a statement something like this. When you find yourself in difficult, dangerous, suffering, and affliction. Then realize that the great coach of the universe has chosen to push you to your limit so that you may win the crown in the great games. What an amazing thought. Isn't that what a coach would do? If you're going to come up against a tough opponent, you have to be pushed to your absolute limit. And that's, of course, what happens. Now, if you turn with me to the book of 1 Peter uh, and... Boy, there's so much in this marvelous book. But I'm only going to be able to touch on a couple of things here. <coughs> First Peter is a primer on preparing for persecution. You're going to see that there's a progression that goes through the book. Now, it's very interesting to me when we look at the writings of the apostles or even the prophets I'm convinced that we often see things that they probably didn't pick up on. Peter himself tells us at the end of his first chapter here that after the prophets wrote the words that they wrote, they sat down and studied their own writings trying to figure out what in the world does this mean? And sometimes I think as we come along and you could probably have a hundred different pastors or you could go to a hundred different commentaries of some of the greatest communicators <coughs> who have ever lived and they'll each approach this book from a different perspective. And that's good. You know why? Because they're in a different situation, in a different time, dealing with different people, and they're drawing from the well of this book that which relates to the needs that they see before them in the people that they're ministering to. I just want to touch on five different types of suffering that you're going to experience. In 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll notice, and I'm going to have to let me just start in verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. Do you see a parallel here with what Paul just taught us? Here's what Christ has done, the finished work of Christ. Here's what is ahead in the future. He's following almost as if he read Romans 5 and said, I'm going to expound on that. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. <coughs> Excuse me. Reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. What a marvelous comfort to know that there is an inheritance that is reserved for me, and meanwhile, I'm being kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. First level of suffering. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We all go through various trials. The word translated various is an interesting word. It can mean multicolored. Uh, it can mean multifaceted, like a diamond. Uh, various kinds. We might say the trials of life are too many to count them. They're, they're simply various trials. And I would suggest to you that if you sat down and read through Roman, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, you would realize that that first chapter is kind of talking to the new believer. And here the new believer needs to understand who he is in Christ and what he has and what Christ has accomplished for him and the plan that God has for his life. <coughs> but he needs to understand <coughs> that there are various trials that he's going to go through. Different kinds, different times, situations, and that's true of all of us. But I believe for those who set their sights on fulfilling the plan of God and growing to spiritual maturity, not only is there increasing wisdom, increasing understanding, increasing ministry, there's also increasing opposition. I want to promise you this, the harder you run after Jesus Christ, the harder the opposition that's going to be against you. And we're going to see that very thing as we work our way through 1 Peter. So various trials we're all familiar with. Various trials are going to be experienced by every believer. And then we move into chapter 2. And he kind of gives us an indication that we're now moving on from the infant stage when he says in verse 1, Therefore laying aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking, very similar to James chapter 1 about verse 22 where he talks about laying, laying aside the overflow of wickedness. Notice, as newborn babes, that is those guys I was talking to in chapter 1, desire the genuine milk of the word that you may grow thereby. All right, you've been born again, you've been justified, you have all the provisions of God's grace, what are you going to do with it? Let's grow up. Let's grow up. If indeed, verse 3, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And then as you go on through the chapter, you'll notice that he focuses in on the fact that every believer is a priest. And I think once we get past that stage in chapter 1 of orientation, in other words, identifying who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, <coughs> once we start focusing on moving ahead in spiritual growth, we come to our first ministry. There are three main ministries that apply to each and every one of us. We are all going to 
be called to account. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ, there's going to be a question given to each one of us. What have you done with what I gave you? And there are three ministries that we will be held accountable for. The first of those is prayer. That is the exercise of our priesthood. The second of those is witness. That is the exercise of our ambassadorship. And the third of those is ministry. And that is the exercise of our spiritual gift. And I think you can see that there is progress in the spiritual life in those. A baby believer can pray. But a baby believer doesn't always know how to witness. As they grow in their knowledge and understanding and spiritual maturity, they begin to have the capacity to present the message of Jesus Christ to those around them. And as they exercise their ambassadorship, the day will come that they will understand they have a spiritual gift to minister within the body and they have come really to the uh, ultimate expression of their gratitude for Christ and what he's done for them. And so he talks about the fact if you look at verse 5, your living stones being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and then drop down to verse 9, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How are we going to do that? <coughs> We're going to express it in prayer. That's our prayer life. And as we grow to this level, we're going to enter into a new area of suffering. He says down in verse 10, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering unjustly. There's a big step between various trials and unjust suffering. All of us have experienced, I'm sure somewhere along the line, suffering when we did nothing wrong. We didn't do anything wrong. We may be falsely accused, we may be slandered. Certainly in the Christian realm, we come under attack. People misjudge our motives. Uh, they look at us through the lens of their preconceived idea of what it means to be a Christian. <coughs> You know, you're like a, a Puritan, a goody two-shoes. You're better than everyone else, so on and so forth. And that's, that's the way you're approaching. You did nothing to bring that on yourself. I would suggest to you that unjust suffering is the next level that we're going to meet in our spiritual life as we move forward. And I would suggest that the way to meet it is in the way that he tells us here in chapter 2, and that is exercise your priesthood. Take it to the Lord. He kind of finishes the section with the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, for to this you were called. How do you like that? You were called to unjust suffering. May as well get used to it. It's the calling of God on your life. To this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin. Notice he did nothing wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, so that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. For you are like sheep going astray, and you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer 
of your souls. Well, we've moved a couple of steps from suffering various trials to suffering unjustly because there was nothing we did to bring it on. What happens when you move into the next higher level where you suffer because of something you did, only what you did was right? That's where he takes us now as we move into chapter 3. And I'll just mention in verses 1 through 7, he starts out with husbands and wives because this lesson has to begin at home. It has to begin within the marriage, within the family, <coughs> and then spread throughout the church. He talks a lot about submissiveness in verse 13, again in verse 18, being submissive. And then he says in verse 19, for this is commendable. In other words, this is approved. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. You're suffering wrongfully. Why? Because now you're suffering because of the things you've done right. Verse 20, what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. For to this you were called. We've seen this before, have we not? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. What are we learning to do? We're learning to follow the example of Jesus Christ and suffer when we did nothing wrong. That was kind of a rehash of the end of chapter 2. Moving into chapter 3, we move into a higher level. He continues the submissive idea there in verse 1, uh, talking about the husbands and the wives. But then he comes down to verse 14, and it's here that he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. I mean, we all go through various trials, and sometimes we go through suffering unjustly, how many of us have ever actually suffered for the sake of righteousness? In other words, it's not just that you did everything right. It's that you became an expression. You became a living example of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You became so conformed to his image that the world looked at you and said, we hated him and crucified him, and we hate you, and if we could, we'd crucify you. Because I want to tell you something. Everything that you're seeing on the world stage, everything, global warming, pandemic, can't have a gas stove anymore, can you? Mm. People in Britain are being fined for burning wood. They can't afford heat anymore. They're trying to heat their homes with wood. They're being fined. The vice is closing in. But I want you to get this point. All of it is ultimately aimed at taking you and me down. The time will come that all of it will be targeted at the Christian. We will be seen as the ones that are the cause behind all the problems. It's already happened in other countries. It's already beginning to happen in our countries as well. And we may as well prepare ourselves because the battle's coming. So when you do righteousness, you reflect the character of Jesus Christ. 
Who will harm you in verse 13 if you do what's good? Surely our politicians would never harm us if we do what's good. But even if you suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. If you and I get to this stage, uh, we are, I would say, on the line of maturity. I believe chapter 3 is where Peter leads us from that newborn in chapter 1 to the growing believer in chapter 2 to the mature believer in chapter 3. Conformed to the image of Christ, hated by the world around them because when people look at them or the world as a whole looks at them, what they see is Christ. You are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. So how would we meet this kind of challenge? Well, I think he gives us the answer in verse 15. (coughs) Sanctify the Lord God, or some translations have the Lord Christ (coughs) in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason of what? Go all the way back to chapter 1, the hope that's in you. You know what? No one's going to ask us of the hope that's in us if we don't have it. No one's going to ask us of the hope that's in us if they don't see it. The last three years have opened the eyes of people around the world like nothing else ever could. And while the hearts of many have become more and more hardened, and I would suggest to you that the phenomenon that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are already entering into the early stages of it. God said, for those who hate him, I will send them strong delusion so that they should believe the lie who received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. The gospel was offered. The door was open. The invitation was given and they hardened and hardened and hardened until finally God says, I'm going to drive them mad with delusion. Does that sound like our world today? I think it does. I think that strong delusion has already begun. We need to be prepared to be the ambassadors that we've been called to be. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. <coughs> I really wish that Fassel could have been here because <coughs> Fassel is one of the best disciples that I've ever had and he's also one of the best evangelists I've ever known. Uh, everywhere I go with him, he has a way of turning any conversation into an issue of the gospel. And he does it in a very inoffensive way. I know that God didn't call me to be an evangelist because sometimes I want to take a hammer and try to beat it in people's head. It just doesn't work. Fassel does it with a joke and a laugh and leaves the people smiling even if they don't believe what he said. (coughs) I wish he could have been here with us. He is a true, tremendous ambassador of Christ. But we need to move on. And I'm going to try to do chapter 4 and chapter 5 real quick. <coughs> I don't know if my, do you have some water? my voice, I've got some water right here. I don't know if my voice is going to hold out or not. My pages keep flipping and I'm looking down, trying to find out where I am and I'm in the book of James. In chapter 4, therefore, verse 1, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... <coughs> Arm yourselves with the same mind. That word arm, (coughs) hoplizo is a word that means to put your battle armor on. 
It refers to specific armor for a specific battle. Arm yourselves with the same mind. What was his mind? He came here knowing the cost and he was willing to pay it. If you want to study a parallel passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ. Study that passage. Who, even though he eternally existed in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself to death, even the death of a criminal on the cross. Arm yourself with the same mind. What would that mean for you and I today? That would mean that if the worst thing we could imagine was coming, <coughs> we would recognize that God had a redemptive purpose in it. For the believer, God always has a redemptive purpose in our afflictions. Not only for us, not only our refining, our purification, our spiritual growth, our conformity to the image of Christ, but also the impact and the effect that we can have. You stand before any group of people, you stand before people in all different situations of life with all different tests, trials, difficulties, experiences, whatever. And that believer going through suffering and affliction with joy and hope and confidence in Christ. And as I said, it's coming. If you and I can do that, our greatest days of evangelism and ministry are just ahead. And I pray that we will rise to that challenge. So arm yourself with the same mind. And why is that? Well, I'd love to take a lot more time, but verse 12, <coughs> Beloved, do not think it strange. I have a feeling some of us are going to be thinking what's coming down the track is very strange. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange things happen to you. You know one thing Jesus was very honest about? If you follow me, you're following a path of suffering. If you're going to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after. So it's not a strange thing at all. We were forewarned. Notice verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Can I just quickly review various trials in chapter 1? Suffering unjustly in chapter 2. Suffering for the sake of righteousness in chapter 3. We have now reached almost the ultimate level, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, suffering because the world sees him in us. Suffering because they can't reach him, but they can reach us. The only way they can make him pay, they think, is by making us pay. To share the sufferings of Christ is a cause of rejoicing. Why? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 says, if we suffer with him, we shall what? We shall reign with him. And the level of our reigning, the degree of our rank, the role that we will play in his eternal kingdom, it's all being determined right now. Every one of us, every decision we make every day is plotting a course that is going to affect the role that we will play in that kingdom. 
Verse 14, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. You say, well, how then can we meet this time where we may experience the sufferings of Christ? If you back up to verse 10, he moves us up a level going from <coughs> priesthood and prayer life in chapter 2 to ambassadorship in chapter 3. We come to the exercise of spiritual gift in ministry as each one has received a gift. <coughs> if you're a believer, you have a gift. God gave you a gift at the moment of your salvation. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each one is given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the profiting of all. Our prayer life is directed between us and God. That's very private. Our witness is between us and the unbeliever. It's very simple. Our ministry becomes sometimes very complex because we're dealing with members of the body of Christ. And just as family, you know, I always laugh when people say, I came from a dysfunctional family. <coughs> I always say, who didn't? I don't think I've ever known a family that wasn't dysfunctional to a degree. Obviously, some much more than others. And when we get within the body of Christ, within the family of God, there's often a lot of dysfunction. <coughs> That's exactly why we've been given a gift and why that gift is needed in the body of Christ. Minister that gift, he says, to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter doesn't give us a long list of spiritual gifts. He breaks them into two categories. You either have a communication gift or you have a ministry gift. There are a lot of different areas in that. You can check out Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4. And you can see how those break down. But all of them fall into one of those two categories. And what's he saying? God gifted you because someone around you needs the ministry of that gift. Minister of the gift. Be a good steward. The steward reminds us of Matthew chapter 25 where the master gave out the talents and went on a long journey. <coughs> when he came back, what was the question? <coughs> what did my deposit gain for me? Imagine yourself on that day standing in the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and he looked solemnly into your face and asked this question. What did you do with what I gave you? Because that is the question that will be asked. He's not going to ask me how my wife did, or her or me, or me how another pastor did, or another missionary did. That's when it all comes home and we have that private moment. We love to have a private moment with the Lord Jesus. It's coming. But it's coming with accountability. What have you done with what I gave you? As we move into chapter 5, he starts talking to the elders, the leadership, because he's dealing now with uh, maximum maturity at the highest plane. Talks about the importance of the younger people submitting to the elders and all being submissive to one another in verse 5. <coughs> because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
And then he takes us to the highest level of suffering that any person on this earth can experience. Personal satanic attack. I would suggest most of us will probably never experience this. Oh, he does try to trip us up and he attacks us through his little minions. But what we're talking about in this passage is something much, much more. We're talking about the level of attack experienced by people like Job, Abraham, Daniel, Isaiah, uh, possibly Sarah, uh, Esther, uh, others uh, of the great heroes and heroines of the faith. Because he says in verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Any of you ever been to Africa and seen an animal, a lion pull an animal down? It's an amazing thing. You know who the lion goes after? The weak. Not this one. That's not how this lion hunts. This lion hunts for the strongest. He's going after the ones that are hindering his plans. He's going after the ones that are hindering his kingdom, who are plundering and snatching the brands from the fire and bringing people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and disrupting his plans and his purpose. That's the person that he personally takes an interest in. The others he can relegate to minor imps and demons and whatnot to disrupt their lives and distract and discourage and so on and so forth. He is walking about looking for the strongest. And when Satan went before God in the book of Job and called Job's name, that was the attack that we see here. And I think it's reserved for relatively few, but we should all, I don't know, can I tell you, strive to attain to that? It's an honor. The greatest honor that Job ever had was when Satan said, just let me touch him. He'll curse you to your face. And God said, go for it. Go for it. See how faithful he really is. He seeks whom he may devour. He says in verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. <coughs> the word resist means to stand against, to withstand without flinching. No give. No breaking of ranks. No turning the back. Steadfast, solid, like a rock. Standing firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by our brotherhood in the world. There are people all over this world right now that are going through this. I'll never forget the time that Fassel called me on the phone. He said, they put my name out. I've been targeted. And they're saying that they're going to take me out. What should I do? Should I stay or should I flee? I said, I can't give you that answer. But I said, you need to get on your knees and you need to pray and you need to ask God because if you flee and you're supposed to stay, it'll be the biggest dishonor of your life. If you stay when you should flee, you probably won't make it out of there. You need to know God's will, not mine. But I said, I will be praying with you through the night. He woke up the next morning and he said, I'm going to stay. Other pastors, they all fled. I mean, the place was deserted of pastors with the exception of him. They never came. 
They never showed up. You know why? Because he called Satan's bluff. And Satan can't touch you unless God pulls back the hedge and gives him permission. And once we understand that nothing in this world, nothing of the realm of Satan can ever touch me unless God allows it. <coughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> I hate this cough. <laughs> it includes even things like this. Being sick. It's part of a plan. There's something to be gained in it. Providing that we orient and adapt to it and rejoice through it as we should. The same sufferings are experienced by our brotherhood in the world. Verse 10 says, but may the God of all grace, and this would be my closing prayer for each and every one of us. May the God of all grace who called us, by the way, it's a fascinating study to go for, through <coughs> First and Second Peter and look at his use of call and calling. Very, very interesting. The God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, as I said, all suffering have a use by date. They're only going to last so long. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your life and my life can be a trophy in the hand of Jesus Christ forever. It can be, if you will, an emblem on his crown. Something that shines forth in praise to him because <coughs> of a life we chose to lead. Persecution's coming. One of two things is coming first. Christ is coming to call his bride home or persecution's coming. I have absolute certainty it's going to be one or the other. Probably a little of the one before the other. We need to be prepared. We need to be armed. We need to be equipped. I'm going to leave it at that. I appreciate you bearing with me in my coughing fits. <coughs> I'm going to close in prayer and then I'll turn the discussion over to Daniel. Father in heaven, how I pray that each one of us will realize that we are here at this time, this very hour, <coughs> in the place that you put us for a purpose. We're not here by accident. You didn't slip up and put us into the wrong time, the wrong place. And whatever may come down the track, <coughs> you want us to be a hero in the strife. By your grace, through the power of your spirit <coughs> and the truth of your word, let it be to the glory and the honor and the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. We pray it in his name. Amen.